Aaron, Rachel, and Lauren, and Nate. Interesting. Glad you guys made it uh, today, thanks to your chauffeur here. Was that me, Nick? Oh, okay, good. Uh, and Rachel, great voice. I asked Rachel if she had training or something. She said, no, I'm pretty sure I'm tone deaf. But no, yeah, it was, that was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, very authentic. We're trying to get over ourselves, right? Take my life, all of me. I offer everything to the Lord. That's the goal, this complete surrender, dying to self and living for Christ. Glad the Snellens made it. You didn't take the Model T, did you? Did you really? <laughs> I was going to say, a little cold today, a little, uh, little damp. Can I have that stool too, Aaron? That'd be great. We're going to continue our series today on uh, hope and then guilt and hope. We see in these texts that there's this beautiful picture of hope, and then you see the bad news, and then at the end, there's always good news. This is all going somewhere, and that somewhere is good. I told uh, Bill and, and Connie that you have to stay awake, and you have to laugh at my jokes, and you have to nod your head if you're going to be here today. So I'm glad you're here to have someone in the house. This, this text in Isaiah, we're going to have to go faster, like I said, so we're going to cover all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 today. And I'm so excited because you're going to see how the Lord continues to promise us that he's not wasting all the pain, all the loss that we experience in this life, but that it's going somewhere good. Last week we saw a picture of how God's temple, God's house would be elevated over all other religious attempts to get back to God. And then today we're going to see uh, another beautiful picture of hope and redemption. You know, we saw last week that every nation would be drawn to the Lord and come to him. That all the, the nations would move upward, flow up to this mountain of the Lord, and that wars would cease and that swords would be beaten into plows. And I was thinking about our, our defense budget. It's like over $700 billion right now. That won't be necessary uh, in that day. But then we get the bad news too. The prophet Isaiah exposed the reality, which is what prophets do, right? They show us behind the curtain. They reveal what's really going on. And Isaiah showed us the pride among God's people and really the pride in the whole world that really prevents us from experiencing the blessed hope that God has for us. We can't get out of our own way. Our pride becomes the greatest impediment to what God wants to do. It's the kind of pride that, that makes its own idols, the kind of pride that worships the very things that we have built with our own hands. And ultimately that pride leads to ruin and to disappointment and destruction. Instead, Isaiah pleaded with us to walk in the light of the Lord, to come into his marvelous light in hope and in humility. And he ended that section with chapter 2, verse 22. It says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. He's going to die soon is what he's saying. For of what account is he? Don't put your hope in people. Don't aspire to be like people. They will let you down. Today we're going to see Isaiah continue on that theme uh, we're going to see him expose another major stumbling block that God's people have put in their own way. And really, it has to do with the collapse of their entire society. Their whole culture, their social structure has become so broken 
that it is preventing them from experiencing the hope of God. Israel was always supposed to be a city on a hill. It was supposed to be this, this blessed center nation from which the conduit of God's blessing would flow to all nations. God's plan was to set apart his people as holy. You shall be holy as God is holy in order to bless them and in order that they would then overflow with that blessing into the rest of the world. But we see that's not what happened. Isaiah reveals in this passage the social disintegration, the, the complete collapse of the society among God's people. The foundations of their whole way of life were crumbling around them, and we see that it was God who was doing it the whole time. But Isaiah sees something more than doom and gloom. He sees something more than moral decay and collapse happening here. Beyond the surface of the awful things that are happening to God's people, Isaiah sees the, the sovereign Lord God lovingly and creatively at work in the midst of all the bad things that are happening. And God's work is both terrible and beautiful. God's work is both terrible and beautiful. He leads us into loss in order to give us something better. We need to be emptied before we can be filled, right? And again, this is all going somewhere. All the pain, all the loss, all the hardships that we endure are not being wasted, but somehow through God's grace and for his glory are going somewhere good. That's the hope we have as Christians. Remember the wise words from the missionary, Jim Elliott. Remember the story of, of him and Nate Saint and, and three other guys that went down to South America to witness to this tribe of, of, of natives who never have heard the gospel. He ended up being killed by this tribe of natives. And he said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep anyway in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Wise words that we would be wise to heed. And the truth is that we, we're not going to gain anything that we can't lose. We're not going to gain anything eternal unless we give up what we cannot keep. Loss for the sake of gain. That's the way of God. That's the way of the Bible. And that's what Isaiah is trying to get us to understand today. Loss for the sake of gain. We can either give up things ourselves or the Lord in his love and in his grace will come and take it from us, which is a lot more painful than us releasing it ourselves. So we're going to see two major losses for God's people in this text today. First, we're going to see this idea of, of loss and gain, loss for the sake of gain. We're going to see the loss of stability. Their whole way of life, their culture, their social structure was collapsing around them. Remember, God is the God of all creation. He's the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 1. He's the God of angel armies. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away. That's the theme. He's taking it away from Jerusalem and from Judah, support and supply 
in Hebrew, those are almost the same word. Support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Why is he doing this? Why is he taking these things away? Remember, he is the true commander-in-chief, the God of angel armies. He's taking away everything that makes Israel feel comfortable and that they can do it on their own. He's stripping away this idea that, hey, we're doing pretty good here. We got enough food. We got enough water. We're going to survive anything. We're doing great. We have all that we need. God says, I'm going to take all that. If that sounds cruel to you, if that sounds like God is being cruel by removing these things from them, remember that the most loving thing that our God can do is to get us unbent on ourselves and, and stop staring at our own navels and to understand that he is the fount of every blessing, that he is a never-ending source of power and provision, and yet we tend to rely on the feeble things that we build with our own frail hands. Isaiah explains then that, that God's going to judge his people by uh, allowing this un unstoppable army, the Assyrian army from the northeast, to sweep in and remove all that had given them this social stability, this sense of we're going to be okay no matter what. Isaiah explains the meltdown in, in verses 2 through 4. The mighty man and the soldier the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. He's going to take these things away. The captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. God says, all these men of status, I'm going to take away from you. And instead, I'm going to put irresponsible boys over you instead of these distinguished uh, fine positions of authority over us. It'd be like putting Wesley Snell in here in charge of our nation or in charge of our city or in charge of our church. Not that he's irresponsible, but he's, what, is he two yet? Not yet? He's one. He's, he's walking pretty well for a one-year-old, of course. He's putting these irresponsible, uh, you know, children over them, taking away the leaders of Israel's society. What does that do? It throws Israel into chaos. Look at verse 5. And the people will then oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder. That never happens, I'm sure, at your house. And the despised to the honorable. What happens with the collapse of leadership is you have a society that devolves into chaos. As Gary Everton, one of our deacons here, always says, it's all about leadership. It's all about leadership. People long, I long, for a wise, for a skillful leader to, to rise up and show us where to go. And these people in Israel, when they don't have that, they get desperate. Look at verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, I think this is Isaiah being funny, by the way. You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. What he's saying is like, you have a suit, you should be the president. You have a suit, you should be the, the, the pastor of the church. I think he's being a little facetious even here. But this shows the desperation of the society. They want anyone to step up, but no one is willing. Look at verse 7. 
And that day he'll speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In Hebrew, it says, I will not be a binder of wounds. In my house, there's neither bread nor cloak, and you shall not make me leader of the people. He's saying, whoa, I don't want any part of this ruins. I'm not gonna try to fix this mess. I'm no fool. I don't wanna be in charge here. I'm stepping away from this situation. One way that God judges his people in every generation, by the way, as you know, is by depriving them of worthy leaders. When we have unworthy leaders, we struggle and things go sideways. I also think there's a call here for people to step up when you have the, the, the gifting and when you have the opportunity to be a leader, even when the situation is dire, to step up and lead. Trustworthy leaders are truly gifts from God and we should see them as such. Isaiah cuts to the heart of the issue in verse eight. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. God hasn't left his people, he's present. His glory is with them and yet they have defied that glory. This literally means they've rejected God to his face. That last phrase means they've rebelled against the eyes of his glory. His eyes are on them and they have rejected him to his face. Their entire way of life has left God out of the equation. They've, they've completely ignored him, except for going through the motions of religion every once in a while. They wanted God as part of their lives. Yes, the part that blesses them, the part that protects them, the part that gives them this identity as the chosen people, but they didn't want to surrender every part. They didn't sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. They couldn't do that. They, they had long ago departed from experiencing the presence of God that was with them in glory in every part of their lives, every minute of every day. They quit pretending that they even have a real consequential kind of relationship with the high and holy God. And there's no one to blame but themselves. Look at verse nine. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it, woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves. So often we blame God. God, why do you do this to me? It's we who have brought this on ourselves. The key issue is how we respond to God's glorious presence. Do we love it? Do we long for it? Do we try to cultivate a deeper sense of it? Or do we hate it? Are we scared of it? Do we despise God's glorious presence with us? Either we delight in his glorious presence or we defy it. Do you long for it or do you resent it? That will make all the difference. Again, Isaiah exposes these false leaders in Israel in, in verses 12 to, to 15. Instead of lovingly caring for God's people like they were supposed to do, they were oppressing God's people for their own personal gain. Power corrupts. Not that that happens today at all, right? They're exploiting 
the poor. They're exploiting the marginalized for their own selfish gain. God's people now are going to experience this great loss of stability in their society. Their leaders are going to be inept. Their uh, basic supplies, bread and water, are going to run out. And their problem is a heart one, though. They've not only looked to their own ability to make their lives stable and, and secure, but they've also chased after luxury and, and flashy status symbol type accoutrement for their lives. This next section in chapter three here is about another loss. God's gonna strip away all the finery and all the extravagance. They're gonna see the loss not only of their stability, but the loss of their luxury, the loss of their extravagant ways that they had relied on, that they had chased after. God strips away the bling here. Now we're in the heart of Green Hills here. It's an incredibly affluent area of Nashville. When I've done some demographic research on this area, the median income in the immediate uh, area around our church is one of the highest in the country. Many, many years ago, a guy that went to Belmont um, wrote a song about Green Hills that I think is hilarious about the Green Hills Mall. Andy Gullihorn, one of my favorite singer-songwriters. Maybe he goes too far. It's a little cynical, but I think he nails it. A 16-year-old driver almost caught me in a crash trying to park her brand new Tahoe that she probably bought with cash that she saved from her allowance probably two to three months. That's all. Just another day at Green Hills Mall. <laughs> They're not using this, by the way, as their commercial. I don't know why. I saw a mother push a stroller to the Gap Kids checkout line. I was blinded by the diamond on the baby's pacifier. When they asked for cash or credit, the butler gave his card just another day at Green Hills Mall. I don't want to be that rich. I have never been that rich. Maybe if I was that rich, I would understand what it's like to drop 10 grand on clothes and not be hurt at all just another day at Green Hills Mall. As I was looking over SUVs to try to find my truck, a silver-haired old lady in a gold Jaguar pulled up. She handed me a dollar bill and keys to Valet Park. Just another day at Green Hills Mall. I don't blame her for her mistake. The shorts and tennis shoes were a dead giveaway. You can't wear that stuff in that place unless you're a power walker, then it's okay. I twirled her keys around my finger thinking, what would Jesus do? He's usually a giver, but he's been known to taketh too. Now I'm the only dad in Bellevue with a jag in my garage to remind me of the Green Hills Mall. Our society is full of status symbols too. Our society is full of extravagance, full of luxury. We can't deny that. And if you're like me, maybe you're tempted by the fine things around, it, around us. Perhaps the most loving thing that God can do for us in those moments is to remind us that the only one we need to impress is him. All the other status symbols lead to misery and emptiness of vain chasing after the wind. Look at verses 18 to 23. This sounds familiar, I think. And that day the Lord will take away, again, there's that theme of the Lord taking away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scars. 
the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings. I guess nose rings were cool back then. The festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. You see where this is going. The extravagance and the, the finery, the status symbols. All these things are evidence of someone trying to fill their heart with something other than God. I love shoes. I'll admit it. I'm a shoe guy. I think shoes are cool. I think they're awesome. I don't have like, you know, a whole closet full of sneakers like some people I know do. I kind of wish I did sometimes. And I need to remind myself that it's okay. It's okay to enjoy a cool pair of shoes. But if I'm counting on shoes to make me happy, if I'm counting on shoes to impress somebody, if I'm counting on shoes to give me a sense of satisfaction and self-worth, then I have a potentially deadly heart problem. Another way that God can judge his people is by replacing our absurd arrogance, our absurd desire to have these flashy things and replace that with humiliation. To replace those finery, that extravagance with something that we dread more than anything. The key words in this next section are instead of. Look at verse 24. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Going to have humiliation. The vain pride of Israel's elite class is going to be replaced by the kind of humility that only comes through humiliation. The desperation that we saw back in verse 6 where men were looking for anyone to step up and lead them is now mirrored here by women who are running around looking for anyone to step up and claim them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It's part of the same passage here. Verse 1 of chapter 4, is that in there? Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread, we'll wear our own clothes, you don't need to provide for us, only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The desperation in these women's voices, we don't want anything from you other than to claim us, to give us your name. Remember, this is an extremely patriarchal society that we're talking about where uh, the, to be manless was not only a physical risk where you were uh, in need of protection, but it also carried great societal shame and embarrassment. They were ostracized without a man. They were cut off from society, from their community, leaving them exposed and vulnerable. God's people and this passage are suffering loss upon loss. And God is the one doing it. God is taking away the, the, the stability of their societies, taking away their extravagance, the things that they needed to stabilize and beautify their own lives. Why is he doing it? Well, because these women don't need just another man to provide for them and to protect them. You know, the shame of being manless and the shame of being moneyless is not their main problem. 
Israel's history is, is marked by all these times throughout the prophets where Israel, the bride of God, is calling out for lovers, calling out for other men to come and help her in times of need. But if God's bride doesn't receive the name above all names, the name that she truly needs in order to help her flourish and thrive and give her life now and forever, then her future is going to be as bleak as her past. She needs something. We need something that we've never had before. It's not what we used to have. Many people have lost everything, and what they need is not to just get some of it back. What they need is a whole new thing entirely. And what's amazing here is that God doesn't tell us that he's going to give his people back food and water. He doesn't tell them he's going to give these women uh, a, a new husband. He doesn't tell them he's going to give them some fine things. He doesn't tell the men that he's going to give them some good leaders. He's going to create something altogether new for them. And this is our game. True stability and true beauty. When we lose everything else, God gives us something new. Now we come to our conclusion. This last section is as beautiful as the last section was terrible, okay? Look at verse 2. And that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. You see why this series is called Hope, Guilt, and Hope. We see hope at the end. After all the painful stripping away, after all the loss, what comes next? More humiliation? No. God makes something new, something far better than what was lost. The branch of the Lord, it says in verse 2. That's the Messiah, the anointed one who will come to rescue God's people once and for all. And he starts out very humbly, right? He's just a twig. He's just a branch, an offshoot from the line of David. But he grows into something beautiful and glorious and becomes the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. But not everyone's going to see him that way. He's also going to judge the world. Look at verse 3. And he who's left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Keep going. He who's, keep going, verse 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains once and for all of Jerusalem, then the Lord will come. Go back one, Ron. Ron, Lamus is running slides, which is amazing. When he's cleansed the, the bloodstains of Jerusalem, go to the next one. From its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. God's judgment comes with a spirit of judgment and burning. That's counter to the way we normally think, right? In verse 12, it says, your guides are going to mislead you. The way we normally think is not applicable here. Because this is why uh, we actually find hope, not in avoiding judgment, but by welcoming it. God's burning is a purifying fire, a refiner's fire that cleanses us from unrighteousness, then we change. When we submit to God's judgment by his spirit of judgment, spirit of burning, that's when we become changed. The dross is melted away and we become holy. 
God's judgment just means making things right. It's not something to fear. It's something to long for. To say, God, bring your judgment on me first and then the rest of the world. We should long for that. Only when we're made holy and right will we see Jesus, the Messiah, as our beauty, as our pride. This will, then God will give us himself in a whole new kind of way. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, the people of God, and over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Over all of the glory. Keep going. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. We're going to dwell securely in the shelter of the glory of God, which will cover all of God's people. In the book of Exodus, you know, the glory of God showed up as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was in the middle of the wilderness, leading God's people. But in this day, the glory of God will be on the Mount of Zion. All of God's people, we, the church, the bride of Christ, will gather underneath this canopy. You know what the word is in Hebrew? Huppa. Where have you heard that word before? Maybe you've been to a Jewish wedding. It's a wedding picture. The bride of Christ, the church, and the Messiah will meet under the shelter of the wedding canopy in order to have this intimate relationship to be united to God himself. And instead of being terrified of God's glory and, and being near to him, we're going to relax in it. We're going to dwell secure, shelter, true security and belonging and I, I, being known in this intimate relationship with God himself through Jesus the Messiah under the canopy of God's love. That person is no fool who gives up what they cannot keep in order to gain that which they cannot lose. The problem is that we lack the moral courage to believe that the glorious presence of God in our lives is better than anything this world has to offer. We've worked hard to cultivate a life of security and comfort and stability. We don't like the idea of someone coming into our lives and messing with what we've built. C.S. Lewis, again, helps us to understand what God wants to do with us by taking things away and by giving us something better. In Mere Christianity, he writes this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor here. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Will you allow the Lord to come into your life 
and, and lay your own life down? Will you allow him to make your heart his home, his glorious home? Will you accept the, the massive renovations that God wants to do in your life, knowing that those renovations, even though they weren't planned for, they're going to lead to something beautiful. They're going to give you something that you can never lose. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us too much to leave us the way we are, but that you come into our lives with a wrecking ball, ready to take away, ready to strip away that which prevents us from experiencing the glory of your presence. Lord, forgive us for looking to the things that we have built to give us security, to give us stability, to impress others, to give us a sense of identity. Lord, we ask you with, with boldness today and with trembling, knowing that it might hurt, to come into our lives and, and have your way. That you would tear down, you would strip away that which needs to go in order to build our lives into a beautiful palace where you will reside, where you will live and dwell within us, making us new from the inside out. We love you. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're watching this today and you know that you need to accept Christ, I invite you to call the number 615-297-5303 and talk to someone. You can also go to our website and fill out the connection card and someone will, will get in touch with you pronto. Don't waste any more of your life trying to establish something for yourself. Allow the Lord God to come in and make you new from the inside out. It may be painful. It, it will be painful. No one likes to lose, but do you believe that what you gain will be better? I promise it will be. Let's believe that today with all of our hearts. Let's go now to the Lord by singing a hymn of response. We're going to sing, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. It's this whole theme of take my life and let it be consecrated to you, God. Wherever you lead, I'm going to go there, knowing that where you lead will be infinitely better than anywhere that I go on my own. Will you sing this from your heart today?